So let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for all this, for the Lord's Day, for Christmas Day, for each other, for the record of Scripture, for songs to sing that are full of truth, for each other's faces that we enjoy seeing before we head our separate ways. All of this is good, and it all comes from you. We want to acknowledge that as we begin, and we ask this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we had our Christmas, uh, at least the Mooneyham family, yesterday morning. I'm sure you probably referred to that the same way. That would be you're sitting down as a family, opening up the scriptures, hopefully, and reading what is really important. And then you carefully and methodically open gifts, right? No. Some families, I've seen a few, that go one at a time. And the whole room watches an individual before they go to the next. We were never raised that way. It was basically like a starting block with a gun that's fired and then just poof, and then it's all over in about five seconds. It wasn't quite that way yesterday, and we've learned to be uh, flexible with, with three families. We've got Mooneyham's and then Miller's, and then we've got Wake Chapel, which is also our family. And when it comes to Christmas together on Sunday morning, you've got to figure out, okay, when are we going to do the thing? And as, as the years, you know, unfold, and they're not little children anymore, uh, you, you, it kind of gets enjoyable, but for different reasons. Dad might sit and watch as, as one child opens just enough to see what's inside, drops it, goes to the next... <laughs> As if it's a race. And then there's, there's others that might open it carefully, take it out of the box, examine it for a few minutes, put it back in the box, stack it neatly, and then go to the next. And by then, everybody else is done. But it, it's, it's different to watch these things. And then there's that calm kind of after the storm. Breakfast is done. Maybe the kitchen's cleaned. You've probably got somewhere else to go. But there's a little bit of peace and quiet where parents get garbage bags and stuff all the shrapnel in it and yesterday afternoon I noticed in the cleaning process there was an abandoned gift it was a slim gym not the kind you get into an automobile but the meat stick you know <laughs> see them at service stations they're about this long the good ones in about a half inch diameter it's a half inch size they, they come in quarter inch and half inch. Some of you know what I'm talking about. But there was about two inches eaten off one end, and then it was kind of broken in the middle, and the whole wrapper was in distress. And I asked, Corey, what what happened? And she said, I I think what happened was was they were whipping each other with it. it. It broke as a result. And then there was kind of a skirmish over whether or not the good one should be traded for the broken one. And then it was just left and abandoned. So at that, I went upstairs and started trying to figure out what to say on Christmas morning to a church who's going to share their Christmas morning with us. And I just thought, isn't there this... There's these things that go on in our homes traditionally that we've done forever. And don't ask them where they learn to whip each other with... Slim Jims. They, they watch me and my brother whip each other with Slim Jims. It's stocking fair. We always get them. So do you, right? 
No, they're all different. But then we've got this thing that we sing about, that the world knows about, that the world embraces this, this infant in a manger. But then we've got all this tradition that seems tangled with it, but it's separate from it because there, there has to be a difference between those of us in a church who sing truth like we've been singing and then these things that go on in our homes that are traditional and just part of our culture. What is the difference between the world and believers as far as Christmas goes? I think it could be boiled down to one word, and the word is awe. It's a big word. It's a heavy word. It should only be used for really big and really heavy things, maybe even heavier and bigger things than anything that's ever been heavy or big before. Save it, because there's only certain words you can describe such a story with if that story is indeed true. And after you've had your fun, and after you've had your tradition, and after you've exchanged gifts, there must be some portion of awe reserved for this story. That's where I want to show you a few things in Isaiah 53. If we're asking ourselves, why do we celebrate the birth of Christ? And what's the difference between that and what our culture looks at as, you know, Black Friday? We need a Christmas so that the retail industry can go from in the red to in the black. Commercially, there's, there's a lot going on there. It, it, it serves seemingly a separate purpose. Last night, when we read through the scripture reading, there was one verse in John, verse 16 of John 1. And that was, for from his fullness, that's Jesus, we all have received grace upon grace. And if you keep reading, for Moses gave us the law, but it's Jesus Christ who gives us grace. Well, not many of us look at the law as grace, but that's exactly what it was. To even have a rule book, to know what God expects of us is more than he could or should have told us, but he did tell us. That's grace. We needed a rule book. But then with Jesus, we're given a rule book keeper long after we've all learned that we can't keep those rules. So it's grace stacked on top of grace. There should be awe involved in that. We don't see that anywhere in any religion or in any other human being. Unless, of course, we're talking about something that was given to us by the Lord enough to give away. So Luke's record is most often the Christmas passage that we read. And its sum total of truth is given in verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That, that's basically Luke 2 boiled down to its bare minimum. It's a birth narrative. Now, unless you're really important, probably no one cares about your birth narrative. If you're important enough to have a biography, maybe that's where they start or back up even further in a family tree because it's of interest. You're an important person. But if you're not an important person, there's, there's really... At best case, one author and one book given over to your birth narrative. It's your baby book and your mother made it. And nobody else cares about it. It's probably dusty, stacked up with the other ones. And the firstborn always has the biggest one, right? Secondborn, smaller. Thirdborn, maybe a few things. Fourthborn, does Ben even have one? A little one? Yeah. Isn't that the way it goes, though? Big families, you know, 
five, sixth child, usually you just throw the diaper in the crib and say, figure it out. Because it's, it's just, all that stuff seems to wear off, doesn't it? But here is the world's premier birth narrative. Most of the world knows about it, even if they don't celebrate it. But is, is, there, is there all material in just a well-known worldwide birth narrative? Well, yes, but only because there's more to the story than just being born, because we would never celebrate such a thing, such a way, if it was like anyone else's. The problem, though, for Christmas time preaching is that the Bible doesn't give us much about that birth narrative. Out of the four Gospels, only two talk about it. And of those two, there's not a lot said. Uh, there's more said about the crucifixion, but still, again, there's not a lot there. In fact, you'll have Christmas cards in your home that have stuff in them that the Bible doesn't mention because we'd need more to elaborate on if we're going to talk about it every year, right? That donkey that Mary's riding, you didn't learn about that in your Bibles. The donkey's not there. Some of you will go look for it this afternoon. I know it's there, but it's not. So if Jesus' birth was really no different than other Hebrew births, and we really want to feel sorry for baby Jesus all alone, no room in the inn, when the Greek word doesn't talk about a hotel. It talks about a walled room where you would herd the animals inside the house for two reasons, that they wouldn't get stolen and that any BTUs of heat you would retain in your home while you try not to freeze to death. There was probably no room because of the whole family who came, and that's why they were going back home, because that's where they were born. And they're all piled in because Caesar said to do so, and the, probably the room left was down there with the animals. And it's not perfect, but really, Jesus had all he ever needed, just like any other boy, only needs two things, a mommy and a manger. And they've got it made. Nobody else is going to take better care of them but mommy with a safe place to put them. So we don't really have anything extraordinary here. It, it's ordinary. And that's the basis of the song the choir sang a few weeks ago. How should a king come? The remarkable thing is that we would say a king comes this way, but God says, no, this king comes like every other way because this king is going to take on his shoulders your most basic everyday problem, and that is your sin. He's not going to be special. He's going to be your savior. That is awe-inspiring, but we need to put a few muscles on that skeleton. So, Back to those words, David, Savior, Christ, Lord, given in Luke 2. Those are, are, are significant. They're rooted deep in prophetic history. What does that mean, prophetic history? Well, stories such as the one in Isaiah 53 that would have been written 700 years before Jesus would lie in a manger. But it sounds like it was written at the foot of a cross after he died. It's so close. It's perfect. It's pre-written history is what it is. Let me read it to you, the whole thing, and I'm going to emphasize the personal pronouns just so we can keep in our head as it moves along the difference between us and this Jesus born in a manger in order to die on a cross. The whole movement starts in chapter 42 with, Behold my servant. And the idea of this suffering servant runs for chapters and chapters through Isaiah. But if we pick up in verse 1 of chapter 53... Who has believed what he has heard from us? 
And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. Again, basic. And no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. Doesn't sound like Christmas. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. That's not good for Christmas cards. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He must have done something wrong. God has cursed him. That would be the idea, but we were dead wrong. Verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we, like sheep, gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, his son, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord, read that again, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. That's God sees his son and God shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper his hand. It's not the end of him. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, that's Christ, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. There's the transference. His suffering instead of yours, his righteousness instead of yours, he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Why? Because he poured out his soul unto death. And there's the epitome, the, the apex of the awe associated with Christmas. He was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So how can the developed world embrace a baby in a manger, but described here as an adult that was despised and rejected of men? It's human nature. A baby is disarming. There's nothing more precious. You bring a baby into a room, everybody wants to hush and watch and look, if not hold it or smell its head. But a sufferer? What do you do with that? When you go visit someone near the end, don't you usually get back in the car and say, I had no idea what to say. What do you say? What do you do when you see someone begging? You do anything but look into their eyes because the discrepancy between you who have something and they who have nothing is miserable to you. It's embarrassing. 
Get away from them. They've got their problems. Obviously, it has to do with their decision-making, right? At least what we'll tell ourselves. We don't want to be around a sufferer. And that's what goes on here. That's why Christmas is Christmas. And we still sing the hymns, and you go into places where you shop, and you hear the songs with the lyrics full of theological truth. But Easter, you get a bunny and some sugar and eggs. Um, Where's the suffering servant? Nobody wants to talk about that. So Isaiah presents to us first a rejected person in Isaiah 53, but then the turn describes the suffering rejected person as a vicarious sufferer. It's it's not his suffering. It's yours and mine. And then as an atoning lamb there in the end, having borne our iniquities, we get his righteousness. I want to show you something because I think it's telling. And it might be helpful. Maybe you've seen it before. Maybe you haven't. But if you look at verse 2 again, as far as the rejected person, Isaiah clearly shows him as seen by God. But then it seems as he starts writing as seen by man. Because it says, For he grew up before him, and that's a reference back to God the Father, like a young plant. But then the next phrase, and like a root out of dry ground, and goes on to talk about it being rejected and despised. Now, you'll have to think about plants and stuff. Some of you enjoy growing things, cutting or seed. Um, You might go down to one of these places and buy a specific cultivar. You want it exactly what you want and raise it for what it is. But then that is nothing at all to be compared with this root out of dry ground. The harvest is over. That's the stuff that gets turned under. The the roots that are chopped out, dried up. Uh, Thinking not long ago about sweet potatoes across from the place where we will live and the machine going through and turning them all up. But there's always some stragglers, right? Some skinny ones, which make really good high you know you can use them but for the most part they get kicked aside the big ones you know the ones and the twos but not the threes and the fours so you got a god in heaven looking at his tender shoot and a world looking at a dry root the baby's one thing but as he grew up there's 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 nothing to see here It's just a carpenter's son who's got these ideas, but he's cramping everyone's style. It's good to be someone who's blind or lame, but it's bad to be someone who teaches an old, worn-out, twisted, traditional truth system back to Moses that no one has ever kept, but all of them act as if they can. He's no good for that. So in the eyes of God, a new shoot, the eyes of man, a dead root, a man of sorrows and the throes of grief such that men hide their faces from him. At this point, you almost want to say, uh, what is he doing? What is this all about? God in heaven, do you want to show the world how much you hate your son? This doesn't make sense. The answer to the question is the very next verse. What is he doing? 
Verse 4, surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. The griefs were not his own. The sorrows were not personal. He came here for your grief and your sorrow. And it's at this point that Christianity kind of becomes real. And I think somewhere in midlife, once you've realized that it's not all it's cracked up to be, it's full of hurt. We hurt each other, especially the ones we love the most. It's, it's, it's a mess. When you finally get to the spot that you can read your Bible and agree that it, that it says that your heart is messed up, it's at this part where we realize that little baby was sent by his daddy in order to take my grief and my sorrow because of my sin and pay for it himself. And that's when the jaw opens and there's nothing to say. There's only awe. Kind of like with Job and his friends. You know, what did Job's friends think was the problem? Well, you messed up, Job. God doesn't treat people like he's treating you. If you haven't done anything wrong, you say you haven't done anything wrong, but we know you've done something wrong. You might as well just cough it up. And the truth was he hadn't. It was some type of wager. And then in the end, when God came and asked Job, where were you when I did all that I've done? And who are you to compare to my wisdom? Job put his hand over his mouth in awe. I'm creation. He's the creator. And he saves me from my ash heap? I deserve the ash heap. His friends learned a lesson too. That can't be what's going on. He's not in trouble. He's our Savior. Look at verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was his idea. He put him to grief. But when his soul makes the offering for guilt, he'll see his son and prolong his days. Death won't claim him. He'll raise from the dead. The Lord will prosper his hand. He'll rule in authority. Out of the anguish of his soul, his father will see and be satisfied. By the knowledge he shall be the righteous one, my servant, making many to be accounted righteous. He shall see and bear their iniquities. That's the difference. The commercial world doesn't look at that baby as your sin bearer. But the Bible says that's exactly who he is. So there you have it. This is why we sit in awe at the baby in the manger. Born to die, as much a sacrifice as an infant, as an adult. Let me just read this and it'll be enough. Jesus is the one who finally delivers on the promises of everything we acknowledge as good and true. Life is full of promises. Most of them will be broken. If they're not, it's just because we were able to execute them before time ran out. But to think about that... What do we sing about? What's the advent? Love, joy, peace. That's what the carols are built on. But where does it come from? Within ourselves? If we could, like the goofy movies do, all get together and sing to give Santa's sleigh and his reindeer enough magic dust to get the job done for the night. I mean, how many stories are like that? And it's a ripoff. The real story's right here. There's a lost world. They've got to be saved. How's it going to happen? This is how it happens. He alone 
is the one who finally delivers on the promises of everything we acknowledge is good and true. He alone died in our place for our sinful selves. He alone rose from the dead as death had no claim on his righteous self. He alone ascended to the right hand of his Father's throne to intercede for our redeemed selves because of his work on the cross. He alone will turn it, return as King and Lord of the new creation. We just read about that in the Catechism down to the tender act of wiping away every tear associated with the brokenness of this present world. He alone is worthy of all because he alone is the reality of all that is right, having died to conquer all that is wrong. Merry Christmas. I hope at some point today you'll have a little quiet space not to collect the remnants of a broken Slim Jim but to sit in awe of a Savior who in the middle of our busy schedules he saw down the tunnel of time determined before the foundation of this world to give you a gift more costly and precious than anyone could ever imagine or articulate in order to not spend eternity without the ones he created for his purpose that would be you that is something to sing about and that's what we're going to do before we leave. We've got more to sing. And then we'll go be with our families, which are gifts given to us by the God who gave us himself. But before we sing, let me pray. We'll sing and we'll go home or to someone else's home. Father in heaven, thank you for Christmas in your house. Thank you for the promise of Isaiah 53. Thank you for a suffering servant who was given to us as a baby in a manger, would pay for our sins on the cross of Easter, would leave this world before Pentecost where we were given the Holy Spirit, but to prepare a place for us where we'll spend forever. Not like we are now, but like you are when you left, glorified, redeemed, restored, forgiven. Lord, may we look at these things May we ponder them in our heart. May we teach them to our children. And may it never be said that there exists a generation that doesn't know the God of their fathers or the reason for its holiday. Until you come back, may you find us busy. And may that start wherever we're headed. We ask this in your precious name. Amen.